I don't think fraud or risk or what could go wrong should be the reason why we don't push incredibly big boundaries. I'll tell you what's been really hard and interesting, I think a good learning about B2B sales is there's the sale. And if you're at a SaaS business, the month after the sale, the first user logs in and boom, you have revenue, right? In a payments business, that's not exactly how it works. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Stephanie Kirkpatrick, founder and CEO of Orum, a fintech company that's built a single API to enable U.S. real-time and fast payments across RTP, FedNow, same-day ACH, wires, and many more. Launched in 2020, Orum has raised over $80 million from great fintech investors, including Inspire Capital, Bain Capital Ventures, Clock Tower, A-Group, Primary, and Axel. In this episode, we discuss the future of real-time payments in the U.S. and how Orum is helping increase adoption for small and mid-sized banks, why the risks posed by new technology should not deter technological innovation, lessons learned from building an enterprise sales organization, asking for help, and why founders should create a personal 911 call list, and just a lot more. Stephanie, welcome to Fintech Leaders. Miguel, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining. Last time I saw you was actually not long ago in person in Mexico City of all places. And I'm glad we finally coordinated a time after that for a recording. I wish we were recording in Mexico City. Let's do that next time. Yeah, but we we have our, our friends from Clock Tower to thank for that great meeting. Stephanie, so... I have a lot that I want to ask you. You are in the middle of a very interesting side of fintech, which is payments and specifically real-time payments. And that is a hot topic, not just in the US, but around the world. And, And I know you have a global view, so we're going to talk about that. But before we talk about all those things, let's hear a minute or two about you and how does someone end up building a company specifically in payments, in real-time payments. It's not the most obvious thing that everyone wants to do out there. Well, I think, Miguel, when you ask that question, I smile to myself because everything I've done in my career is really a derivative of just curiosity. And in this case, I'm a non-technical founder. I've never written a line of code, right? And I'm actually not even from the payments industry. But the problem for me that I think is worth solving is really understanding time to money. And I'm going to focus my thinking kind of on how we think about it here in the U.S., although globally there's obviously a lot to do with faster payments. In my childhood, my dad was an immigrant and grew up, you know, with a lot of the things that you see immigrants today struggle with, whether it's access to credit or credit scores and just myriad number of things that kind of shaped my interest in financial services broadly. 
And specifically, my interest in figuring out how do you help that evergreen question of you know, speeding up access to dollars so they're in the right place at the right time. How do you help people who have less have more? So I started actually my career as a certified financial planner, and I'm still a CFP to these days. So you'll probably hear me talk a lot today about, you know, from the end customer perspective, what could time to money feel like? Everybody listening has had their own experience with trying to figure out how to get money from A to B. It's their own money, perhaps, right? It could be at a high yield savings and you need to get it back to your checking account so you can make a payment on your credit card because you've got an emergency situation. You have to book a flight overseas for a funeral, right? These use cases pop up every day in our lives. And some are less devastating than others, but many are holding back, in my opinion, the American wallet and thinking about American households and small businesses and, and businesses of all sizes being able to really optimize around the ability to have the right money in the right place at the right time. And so that's the curiosity factor of building first financial planning software and a series of patents that got acquired by Northwestern Mutual back in 2015, and then studying from the inside of big financial services, the problem of getting money into, out of, and across financial services products. And like just asking the question over and over and over again, why is it T plus seven if I go to move money on, you know, a Friday afternoon and I miss the cutoff and Monday's a holiday, right? And I can remember actually one time in my life, probably many times, but one that stands out using my Wells Fargo account, like bill pay feature. And, you know, I had an automatic bill pay set up for something and the, you know, timing of the bill pay to go out was like apparently tied to Martin Luther King, which is a holiday in the US and thus the banks are offline. And so I had a late payment because there was an extra day delay in the settlement. And I was like, shocked that this could even happen and be possible, right? This was earlier in my life. This is before I was studying the problem. But these things come up all the time and you're you're beholden to a system built 50 years ago, not designed to think about what we've done both digitally and how the entire world has changed, in particular in the last five years and really through, I think, the COVID years, to focus on speed of experience and really matching what consumer expectations have had for a long time in e-commerce and other parts of life to where we could be with financial services. So it's a long answer to your question, but what drives me is ultimately figuring out more and more and more about how we solve this eternal problem, or at least eternal in the US, of not having to overnight a check if in fact a payment needs to get to you quickly and like, could there be a better way? So I got curious about the problem right around the time that the clearinghouse was beginning to build RTP. And it just piqued my interest that there was going to be a new way to do it. What I find interesting is that to optimize real-time payments, and in this case, the clearinghouse's RTP product, there's so much change that has to happen in a financial institution. And there's still so many other choices, checks, wires, ACH, same ACH. How do you know which path is the optimal path? And so that was the genesis of thinking about Orem. So Orm's the simplest API for fast, reliable payments. And with our single solution, you get all of the above, right? RTP, FedNow, wires, ACH, same basage, and more. There's a ton we're doing in wallets and other things that are forms of instant payments. And when I think about multi-rail orchestration, <laughs> complexity of risk management, fraud considerations, like all the things that go into making a single payment decision, and the complexity of thinking about which financial institution, which real, how fast, I start to think about what Amazon did for the world 
Nobody cares if that package gets to your front door through UPS, FedEx, Postal Service, or Amazon's blue vans. Now, a lot of Rivians driving around in my neighborhood. But you do care how timely it gets to your front door. And there's even a return feature on Amazon, didn't arrive in time. That's what I feel like money movement should be like, sorry, didn't arrive in time. Like I should get money back for that. As opposed to being charged a late fee by the bank because it's the bank's fault, not mine. So if Orem could do anything in the world, it's to do what Amazon did for same-day delivery, but to do that for bank transfers and money movement in the US. And that's what I think the next 10 years of my life is really going to be focused on. So let's focus on on talking about maybe the orchestration side. You just listed a, a number of payment methods that are available today, and you haven't listed all of them. <laughs> but how, from the consumer side, as you mentioned, you, the, the consumer doesn't care how the money gets to But Oro, in this case, you have to take care of that and... The complexity has to be pretty intense. How did you approach that problem early on? So one of the things that we started with is the idea that you don't ever want a single point of failure in a payment system. And when you think about how many companies are built today, they go with a the bank, they directly connect. That's a multi-year and multi-million dollar investment in a lot of cases. And then they have one way to move money. And maybe that bank has more than one way, but it probably mostly has ACH and wires. So if they want something else, they have to go figure out how to find another provider. So we studied the problem from the perspective of both what I'm going to call back-end bank redundancy. Nobody ever wants a single point of failure in their business. And from the perspective of value prop and opening the aperture of capabilities, because not every bank is going to have every available type of money movement or rail that's, a, that's, that's possible to use in the U.S. So by design, our system always has been multi-bank on the back-end, always will be. And then it's multi-rail. And in a lot of ways, our product is rail agnostic. When you pull up Orem's API docs, you don't see white ACH and wires. You see ASAP, which is the speed parameter that signals to our system as fast as possible. Now we have to make a decision about what is the best path, whether we're optimizing for T plus zero, which is different than instant, which is about T plus 15 seconds. And so thinking about, do we need to have reversibility, revocability? Is there information on file that would allow us to do a wire? Is it above the limit for RTP, FedNow, or same-day ACH? Is the bank that receives this payment able to receive one of those types of transfers? I'm making it sound simple. It's obviously more complex than that. But this orchestration piece is the heartbeat of the IP that powers everything we do in the platform. And really by design so that you don't end up continuously creating what is true for Uber and Airbnb, which is that they have hundreds of engineers and many folks in product and ops dedicated to money movement. Many businesses will never need to get, most businesses will never need to get to a place where there's hundreds of engineers building all of this optimization, right? And so that really drove how we thought about, you know, our initial versions of the product. We actually launched RTP before we launched ACH, which is a bit, which is a bit of a bold move in the U.S. where, you know, at the time, not even 100 banks were live on RTP and the utilization was low. And we just gambled and said, if we can orchestrate based on the hierarchy of needs, speed, risk, and cost, how to pick the right bank and the right set of rails, this is a winning solution. 
And time and time again, as we are out in market, we find that number one, being able to implement and integrate with us nearly instantly, right? Two weeks or less is a huge value prop. You get all of these rails in a single solution and you don't have to go through all the sort of lengthy compliance processes that banks require because we've done that for you. We have some interesting stuff. We'll hopefully do in our next podcast about verification and we have the safeguard component. And I think in a post SVB collapse, you know, universe, so much more thinking goes into redundancy and reliability than it did previously. So while that was always core to our system, I think it stands out today as a really unique capability coupled with all the decisioning that sits at the orchestration level. Let's talk a bit more about real-time payments. You mentioned RTP and FedNow. Part of the audience is going to be familiar with both of them, but I suspect many people are not. Maybe take us through what is RTP, why was it launched a bit earlier, and what is FedNow, and which, by the way, you and I are talking just a couple of weeks after the launch of FedNow. So let's zoom in about that, and we can talk about the implications of those networks. Sure. So real-time payments, or RTP, is the clearinghouse's product. The clearinghouse is one of our settlement systems in the U.S., owned by the top, let's say, 20 banks, that was designed to offer instant payments. And it's modeled on, in theory, some of the faster payments um, products that we've seen that exist in Europe, that exist in India, and today exist in places like Brazil. And the idea behind uh, RTP was literally in 15 seconds or less to create not only a settlement of a transaction, but also to coordinate having payment data. So one of the reasons why ACH is so slow is that it doesn't have any data. Imagine sending a package, but no address. And you just like put it in the mailbox and the postal service has to infer a bunch of information about the destination. And that's complicated and slow. Well, that's a little bit like ACH. So RTP has this really unique parameter, which is that you can send a set of characters and explain more about who it's going to, what it's for. And that can drive more certainty in the payment transaction itself. You also can't go back and reverse it. So similar to a wire, but done automatically as opposed to with human intervention, an RTP, once accepted by the receiving bank, is completely settled. And there is no reversibility. So certainty of payment settlement is very important. So the Clearinghouse brought this product to market a number of years ago. And I think what's been interesting is how did people adopt it? What are the key use cases? And then why did our central bank and the Fed come out with the Fed's version of, of instant payments, which is called FedNow? So I think it's very interesting to have, I think it's a very American bank to have sort of competition as opposed to like a central you know bank that says, this is how we're doing everything. And so now there are two systems live, to your point, as of a couple of weeks ago, and they're very similar. They're kind of like FedEx and UPS. They delivered all the same zip codes, so to speak, um, but they don't interoperate, right? And in this case, as I talk about you know delivery again with Amazon, Amazon sits at the epicenter of being able to pick up a package at a warehouse with a UPS truck, take it through a processing center and maybe deliver it with a postal service delivery on the final mile. That's pretty unique. We've done the same thing around the intersection of the types of payments that can be picked up on ACH and, let's so to speak, dropped off on RTP or FedNow with no intervention from our customers. And so interoperability becomes, I think, a pretty critical conversation when you have now multiple ways to do what would be otherwise for the end customer business, 
an instant transfer that they don't really need to think about which system provided that instantaneous result. And so the Fed launched, of course, FedNow. What are their expectations? I know that you have a take on this, but why even decide to launch it when the private sector, I guess, has a solution? Well, I think I probably don't have the inside baseball answer, but I have the Stephanie answer. And my point of view is that, you know, there are really two different kinds of banks in focus when you think about the private sector and the public sector version of faster payments. And so the Fed is generally serving a population of banks who are smaller in size. And when you zoom out and look at the regional and community bank model that has been part of our DNA and our financial services system in the U.S., we have thousands and thousands of tiny community banks located all over the country to create proximity between the end user, the banking services, and the actual physical bank. Today in 2023, that maybe feels less relevant because we can sign up online and we can do things digitally. But there is a reason why those banks exist. Will they all exist in the future? I think if you follow Matt Harris from Bain Capital Ventures, one of our board members, you'd be quick to see some of his content and say probably not thousands, but maybe hundreds. And with one system really super serving the top 20 banks who certainly have a big you know, footprint, but not 100% coverage, I think the design of what the Fed produced with FedNow is in part to super serve a wholly different population of banks, but with a similar capability. And that's in me when I think about immigrant background and accessibility of financial services and the vision we have at Orem, it's really important to be able to reach over time 100% of U.S. households with an instant solution. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. But then my question is, why didn't more regional banks sign up for like the initial wave of users for FedNow? Because I saw the list and there weren't that many. Well, probably some of that comes down to budget. Neither you nor I have, you know, approximately 30 to 50 to maybe even $75 million of you know, spare cash. And most, I think, even large regional banks, if have it, don't necessarily want to prioritize it on just a single initiative. So how do you think about getting more adoption. I think this is a complicated question. It's not due to lack of intent or interest. I think it's fundamentally due to the way banks' balance sheets are structured and the fact that banks sit on antiquated core systems and the core system is the brain. Well, the core system built alongside the last generation of payment rails, ACH, is old. And so it thinks in terms of batch files but RTP and FedNow both work on the ISO 20022 standard, which is 24-7-365 settlement. So a bank not only has a technology hurdle, which is solvable but requires investment, it also has an operating hurdle. Who's answering the phone or managing you know, a hiccup in the payment system at 2 a.m. on Sunday for small banks that operate not even perhaps 9 to 5, but maybe like 8.30 to 4, in certain regions, that might not be a conceivable change to make today. So how do we enable that, right? Because I don't think talking about it as like a problem that never gets solved is really useful. The way Orem has thought about that is to say, how do we become connective tissue? How do we help banks, not just fintechs or financial services companies, access through orchestration and multi-rail routing capabilities that don't require a $50 million investment? And the more you dig in on 
this opportunity, the more you see the potential to, one, think about banks who could receive, right? The number of places you could get a faster payment transaction to will fundamentally drive up the number of payments that are being sent instantly. And then how many people need to send the instant transaction? When you zoom out, to be honest, many banks don't send payments directly. They correspond through a larger bank. So hopefully that model will continue to be an enabler. But I think one of the most interesting questions is, and for all the entrepreneurs listening, this question of enablement and not believing that Jack Henry or Fiserv or FIS will eventually get there, but really thinking about, and this is what we study all the time at Orem and think about our product roadmap is building bridges, right? And this is the perfect place for FinTech to kind of close the gap, in my opinion. Yeah. So the, the direction of travel is clear. It's just not going to be overnight. And enablers like Orem and other companies are probably going to have an important role, more important than in other places around the world where the rollout has been different, where there's no competition and is mandated by the central bank like Brazil. Like you have to use this and you have to have a clear button in your app, in your home screen, a little bit of a different market. Absolutely. I mean, when you and I were in Mexico City, I was sitting with some folks and they were logging in to show the different experiences and the requirements around PICs. And to have that central button must be a requirement. I mean, that is an, an unbelievable way to create adoption. I think in the U.S. we don't have the regulatory and legislative pressure that would say, let's do it that way. But we certainly have learnings from watching the rocket ship of success of PICs to see clearly why instant payments works, works well, despite having new fraud challenges is worth investing in. And I think we're at the beginning of what is a really important transition in the way payments operate in the U.S. Stephanie, a couple of months ago, I hosted Soup's CEO of Sardine on the show. Great episode. And he had a very interesting comment about real-time payments. And that's about real-time fraud. And he's saying with faster payments comes faster fraud. And they focus on solving for the fraud side. What's your take on the fraud side of oh, this new technology, I guess? So I'm going to give you a very strange answer here. And then we'll talk actually about fraud. When you first rode in an Uber, how many questions did you have about the safety and security of the person driving? Not a ton. Yeah, it was, I was okay with it. Okay, so what turns out to be true is that many, but not all Uber drivers are great people. And every now and then with innovation where we have you drive your own car and you're you and I'm me and you now know where I live and all these things, every now and then that goes sideways. But the exponential growth and the innovation and the power of both the accessibility, but also the speed by which, you know, people could suddenly take a depreciating asset like a vehicle and turn it into an investment and be able to create income was pretty powerful. Powerful enough to overcome the fear that I don't know who the hell is driving me and whether or not we're going to get for me to be safely in in one piece. And I still get in the back of a car sometimes and think, how on earth am I riding around with an absolute stranger, right? And outside of New York City, where taxis aren't super duper common, when you do that in you know central parts of the country, it's a pretty big change. So I say that because I don't think fraud or risk or what could go wrong should be the reason why we don't push incredibly big boundaries. And absolutely, Soups is right. And that's why sardines exist, right? Like the upstart of a bunch of companies who will focus on identity and fraud coupled with payments is an absolutely new 
and very valuable layer of the fintech ecosystem. And those two pieces of infrastructure, identity and fraud, are necessities now. So I don't think when any innovation is hit, we've ever had a perfect upside case that all innovation is only good. If you think about Venmo, suddenly you've got people walking around in Central Park and folks are grabbing their phones, physical device takeover, and Venmoing themselves the maximum money and running off with the phone. But it didn't stop the trajectory of growth because it was solving such an important problem. And it continues to be one of the biggest payment platforms today, right? So those are, I think, examples of like, there is absolutely going to be new problems to solve. Being ahead of, not behind the curve on thinking about fraud is, I think, critical. And ultimately, I think when I think about many types of fraud that get associated with instant payments, I wonder how much we are conflating what is essentially social engineering scams. Meet me here, buy a puppy. We fall in love on a dating app, but never talk. And I wire you all my savings. Those things existed decades before anyone was thinking about RTP. They exist today. In some ways, they've gotten worse. And perhaps that's just, you know, a whole world filled with people looking for connection. But that's not a faster payments problem. That's a social engineering fraud problem. And whether you're sending a check or you're sending an instant payment, the reality is those scams are going to continue to exist, right? So I hope in my heart, and I believe Soups and the team at Sardine and many others focused on this arena are going to get it right. And that's a hugely important part of being able to have two to three puzzle pieces clicked together between identity fraud and payments. And the sky's the limit for what we can do, I think, collectively as a community of fintech builders to think about next generation tools and the potential to share data with each other, which you know has been a forbidden sin. My data, never sharing it with anyone. You know, there's a real upside to thinking about network effects of data as well. Yeah, I know quite a few of those uh, Venmo stories and all my friends are still using Venmo. Shout out to my friend Pedro, who has a horror <laughs> story. <laughs> but Stephanie, how was the, the sales part of this when you first got started, right? Like enterprise sales is not easy. And then especially selling to financial institutions. I mean, talk about long sales cycles and complicated sales process. You know, how did you approach this part of the problem? Well, I think first, and I think importantly for everybody listening that thinks like founding a company must be easy and building it must be obvious, man, did I fall on my face around enterprise sales. And I had the best folks advising me, right? Justin Overdorf, who was formerly running M&A for Stripe, was an early angel investor, and Charlie Ma from Plaid, and all these folks that had seen good B2B sales, and they gave me the playbook. But as somebody who had spent my entire career in a consumer-facing world, it just didn't come naturally, this idea that we would need to have a certain sales motion. And what does sales motion even mean, right? I like had to Google that one. And I just felt like so out of my depth. I read books, I found advisors, and still it was, and I think remains, for me, an unnatural territory. Salesmanship, natural. B2B sales motion still feels new to me. And that's many years into building Orem. So I think a couple of things, when you're selling into financial services companies, I think having come from a regulated background, albeit consumer-facing, helped a lot here. They're going to ask you for things like a sock audit. And if you don't have that, you're probably not going to get very far in the process, right? So getting organized around InfoSec, which 
historically was something you did after 10 million in revenue. And today is something you do basically at its company inception. And thanks to Leica and Vanta and many companies, you know, certain aspects of that are much easier. So I think that's part of it. The other part of enterprise sales is, you know, I had a, a really interesting advisor kind of guide, like, don't go treasure hunting, right? If every time you have a customer call, you have to scurry back inside and figure out the answer, and then you're going to be like up and down and back and forth. Try to figure out categorically what the pain points are for businesses of a certain model and repeat inside your sales process, identifying those problems, answering their questions, showing value. So all of that started to get more natural as we spent time on it, but I'll tell you what's been really hard and interesting, I think a good learning about B2B sales is there's the sale. And if you're at a SaaS business, the month after the sale, the first user logs in and boom, you have revenue, right? In a payments business, that's not exactly how it works. Payments companies might be moving volume from provider A to Orem. Those are our favorite kind. We call that flip volume. And on the day they go live, there's transactions. But in a lot of cases, particularly in fintech, you may find that you're supporting emerging companies. And those emerging companies think that they're going to be live well before they actually are. And then their volume and traction lags behind expectations. This is not specific to Orem. This is not new news. But I think realizing that it's not just closing and figuring out a repeatable motion. It's really figuring out how to activate B2B customers on time to value and shortening the time from signature to first transaction, which is when we mark time to value, and then really pushing on with customer success, increasing adoption as quickly as possible, maximizing use of all your features and expanding the types of services, products, or features a customer is using, which is important in the cycle that will lead to renewals. Just because you signed a three-year contract does not make it a three-year later problem to think about renewals. I think the other aha that's been very useful is that in a lot of cases, the buyer is very different than the person that would renew. People like to buy because it meets a certain business need. They're looking to add faster payments. There's like a business objective. The API docs are great and the integration's easy. And then in payments, the person that like runs payment operations or treasury management or whatever the case may be, that person lives in our product every day. The engineer that built the integration goes back to whatever they were doing. That's the point. So now you have a difference between buyer and business person and potentially engineering advocate and day-to-day ops user. And solving for these different personas is a really interesting puzzle as you think about first, figuring out how to repeat your motion, second, how to deliver time to value shorter, better, faster, and then third, really engaging with and making sure renewals aren't going to be an afterthought. So I'll let you know when we're at 100 million in revenue, what I've really learned, but those are some of my highlights and B2B. That's super interesting. How about we zoom in on what you've learned about shortening the sales cycle and also helping customers ramp up faster? Is it about, and I'm just remembering my conversation with Tommy from Alloy, they realized they didn't have the right people. They haven't hired the right team members to support customers? Or is it about like having the right structure? What have you learned? Well, they're, like Tommy has said, there are definitely some ahas that people have when you start to tell them about like KYC, know your customer and like their face glosses over and they're like, oh, we hadn't thought of that yet. Now that doesn't happen all that often in payments because many companies are already 
established and they're doing that. But when you meet younger companies, they're often for the first time thinking about risk and other things, right? I can remember one of our beloved customers getting live super quickly and then all of a sudden having a spike in fraud. And it turns out they weren't doing certain types of verification. They weren't breaking any rules or laws. They just weren't checking, you know, various things with like an aggregator, et cetera, and like where that can go sideways. We are not as concerned with speed of sales process and sales cycle because what we are concerned with is certainty, that it's roughly this long and we can expect it to be within kind of a a standard cycle. What we're more interested in is after the sales cycle, right, after the signature, what I call time to value. Credit to Omri Don, who's one of our revenue advisors for our Marketin, who gave us this insight, which is how quickly can you get them to do their first transaction? And the more that we've, it used to be hundreds of days, even though our API integration is easy, there were many things that we didn't know that they'd have to build. We had no playbook, right? And as we've operationalized that internally and externally, you know, that num- that benchmark has fallen to, on average, about 50 days. So now we can predictably say, if you sign on August 1st, you'll probably be live in less than 60 days. And then we can better forecast when will revenue hit. So it's a matter of just really like, First, being patient to starting to study the problem and like what's sending people off track. You know, where are they getting to your point lost on like they don't have a key hire or they don't know how to do something and helping them do that better. So a lot of what we offer in our integration experience is now geared towards making sure they build payments properly so they're not re-engineering something later and really being guides. And I think we pride ourselves on payments knowledge as an expertise but it was not super easy journey in the first versions of just me, founder-led sales in this B2B ecosystem that is certainly very different than what I was used to with, you know, online acquisition for D2C. And I'm guessing that you spend time these days with founders that are just starting up and and, and like they're getting ready to go out and, and build and, and raise some capital. When they come to you for advice, Every founder has their strengths. And what would you like to focus on? Like, what are the areas where, where we tend to mentor younger founders in? I think we love the opportunity to help a company get good at what it's doing. And so if there's a way that we can use our brand Halo to showcase a case study, demonstrate their progress in the market, bring them in on a panel, we'll always do that because everybody wins in those scenarios, right? And I think what I've found is like, just being available. I have this concept of a 911 list where I call people that are, you know, above my pay grade, so to speak. They've done something more specific than I have or longer than I have. And there's no shame. In fact, there's tons of pride in saying like, I call on these people when I am looking for the answer to something I've just never seen before. And I think just really like playing that forward as a founder and saying, here's my cell phone, feel free to reach out. And people do it. Right. And I was recently in when actually in Mexico City chatting with a founder. I happen to be an angel investor, but that isn't a requirement to like be on the 911 list. And he was telling me about a problem. And I was like, oh, you should have called me sooner. And we started talking through what's the problem and how do you think about what you're solving for and what's the communication to the board on this. And like we're all living, you know, as entrepreneurs, a relatively similar experience, outgrowing someone on your team having to fire somebody that's uncomfortable, a customer fires you, a security breach, a product outage, like name it all. Every founder will have some version of that. 
And so I think just creating these 911 lists and being open to, you know, honest conversation and knowing that investors are listening to podcasts, like, of course, we've stumbled. Of course, we've made mistakes. Everybody has. Every company that you believe in today, they took some risk somewhere in the journey. And the only reason you believe in them and know about them today is because they bet it all and took some risky things into their way of operating. And I think that's just a powerful reminder of kind of the spirit of the entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, very much like you. And, and thanks for sharing your story that, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it's just at the beginning. <laughs> so your story and you are sitting right in the middle of a huge global trend, right? You're helping enable that. And then there's even talk of some of these real-time payment networks being interoperable worldwide. So maybe we can see, even if it's FedNow, Pix, or any other, also kind of delivering a little bit of the promise that maybe crypto was supposed to deliver for, at least in the minds of some people. I think, ironically, central banks are, are getting that done in some cases. I mean, I think when we come back to orchestration, managing payment complexity, decisioning, all of those things look really interesting. Should the global opportunity come to connect to three or four faster payment systems, you're still going to have that problem. How, how fast an optimal path. And so I see, you know, 10 years from now, a variety of things looking different, but I don't see orchestration and optimization ever going away as a key variable, as, you know, a key part of our IP. It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about what we're doing today and what we're going to be doing next time you and I have this podcast. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Stephanie, thank you again for taking time out of your very, very busy day. And no doubt people are going to be super interested in what you have to say. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Stephanie from Orum. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off, till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Almasa. <laughs>